Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Melissa Stutter, and I'd like to welcome you to Teferit Talk, the blog talk radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where our goal is to promote peace in the individual and in the world through writing. We support this goal by interviewing new and established writers and religious and spiritual leaders. In addition to listening today, you're invited to join our online community at www.teferitjournal.com. That's www.tiferetjournal.com, where you can read and post writings, interact with other members, and subscribe to the journal. We'd also like to let you know that our blog talk chat room is currently open if you would like to chat with other listeners or suggest questions during the program. Our interview this afternoon is with Dr. Bernie Siegel. Siegel is retired from Yale New Haven Hospital, where he was a professor of general and pediatric surgery. He is the academic co-director of the Experiential Health and Healing Program at the Graduate Institute, the founder of Exceptional Cancer Patients, and the author of numerous books, including How to Live Between Office Visits, Prescriptions for Living, and Love, Magic, and Mud Pies. Wayne Dyer has stated, Bernie is one of the world's most respected doctors. I would pay close attention to any prescription he offers. Larry Dossie has stated, Bernie Siegel is a brilliant beacon broadcasting a message of hope. When high-tech medicine is supplemented with love and compassion, we have not only caring but also healing, which is what Siegel's message is all about. Hi, Bernie. How are you doing this afternoon? Oh, I tell people never to ask me that. But, um, <laughs> is it a long well, answer? Well, you see, you know, part of what you're talking about, but I'm always sharing with the world that everybody's wounded, and I love holding up a piece of paper with a black dot on it and saying to people, what do you see? And a lot of people say it's a black dot, and other people say you're holding <laughs> a piece of paper. But I think every every life has that black dot, and it's all about what we do with it. But something that I literally do um, when I'm out and people say, how are you? I love answering. I'm depressed. I've run out of my antidepressant and my doctor's away on vacation, <laughs> so I can't refill my prescription. And I used to think it was, you know, funny the way you're laughing until my wife said, you're not listening to the answers you're getting. They don't think it's funny. And I realized it was unbelievable how many people offer me their antidepressants. I mean, from pocketbooks, taking me to lockers, <laughs> Um, you know, where they're working, all kinds of things. And so you really realize, as I say, the world is wounded and therapy can then happen when the wounded respond to each other. Well, a line I love from Thornton Wilder, in love service, only the wounded soldier can serve, draw back. And that's a line from an angel telling a doctor that he's not going to heal him or cure him. And when the doctor says, why not? The angel explains to him that what makes him a really good doctor are his wounds and his troubles. And the doctor realizes that on the way home. How many people, when they say to him, come into my house, they're saying, you're the only person the family will talk to, you know, because of your woundedness, they're comfortable with you, and they won't let anybody else share with them. And so he realizes that a lot of his therapeutic value comes out of his troubles and wounds. Wow, that's a fantastic story. Um, that that well, actually you know, reminds me. You talk about Teferit, yeah. a line from the Talmud that says, he who rejoices in the afflictions which are brought upon the self brings salvation to the world. 
Think about wow. what that takes, though, to rejoice in your afflictions. But others, yeah. you see, when you look through various philosophies, Nietzsche said, love your fate. Joseph Campbell mm-hmm. said, whatever hell you're going through, ask why do you need it? So suddenly the troubles become your teachers. Mm-hmm. And, and on a simple level, let me say to anybody who's listening, if you have a problem, it doesn't have to be health, anything in your life, you know, it could be marriage, the kids, whatever, your job. How would you describe your problem to someone else? Meaning, what words would you use? So if you said cancer, divorce, lost my job, th- those are what I would call diagnoses. We don't know what you're feeling. But if you come right. up with feeling words, then I would say to you, how do those words fit your life? Because I've been amazed at how much help I can offer people when somebody with a severe migraine headache for a week is about to be sent to the hospital and says it's pressure, and then her marriage is what fits the pressure. She went home 15 minutes later to work on the cause of the pressure and didn't have to go to the hospital because literally her pain was gone and she got up and went home. And and, uh, there are many other words. And some people have used it as a teacher will say it's a wake-up call, a blessing, a new beginning, because they have used it like hunger. You know, what nourishment do I need? What do I need to bring into my life to help me? And then it becomes a gift and not an affliction. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. So so basically, and I remember reading about this in your books too, that um, you know, if you listen to what your body's saying mm. to you, um, then you can sort of get to sometimes the source of the illness and what's causing it rather than just sort of treating it symptomatically. Yeah, that if, you know, paying attention to feelings is a wonderful line I heard from a country western song. I want my heart to wake, to make up my mind. I want my mm-hmm. heart to make up my mind. And wow. people need to pay attention to the feelings. And even in dreams, your body will speak to you of you know, giving you a diagnosis as well as what it would like you to do to take care of it. Because the body is responding to feelings. I mean, it's the chemistry that then affects the genes, that your genes aren't deciding what to do. They're waiting to hear from you. So on Monday morning, you wake up and we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses because your body is responding to how you feel about Monday. And when you love your life, you see, this is the part that's kept me doing support groups for cancer patients and others for 30 years. Because when you help people redirect their lives and love their life, some amazing things happen in their bodies. So it's not an accident when a so-called incurable disease goes away. There's always a story that the person has to tell you about how they changed their life. Wow, one, wow, that's one, one that, you know, made me laugh, this woman sent me a letter saying that she felt awful and so agreed with her doctor this time that she had a few months to live. And then she lists mm-hmm. all the things she started doing from getting a dog to laughing more. To, it just goes on. But the letter ends with, I didn't die and now I'm so busy I'm killing myself. Help, where do I go from here? <laughs> and, um, you know, I told her to take a nap. But um, it, it's, you know, that when you do what you love, and I, I don't know, I, I, it's like I never seem to stop talking because I keep thinking of more stories. But how do I judge a good hospice? 
they have dropouts and graduations because people go in, get their life in order to prepare for death, and then say, you know, now that I've straightened out relationships, put everything in order, I'm feeling better. Do you mind if I go home for a while? So a recent study showed that patients who were put into palliative care did better than those who were not. In other words, the ones who were not were continued on with their treatment, but the ones who were put into palliative care where you might say, gee, that's telling them that they're going to die soon, we're just taking care of how you feel. Yeah, but they ended up living longer because of the compassion and the work that they did during that period. Wow, wow. Well, you know, I wanted to ask you something related to that, too. Um, I think one of the really important things that you talk about in your books is, uh, in addition to, obviously, how people can um, heal themselves and, you know, live a more meaningful life, but um, you talk about how people who have people who are ill in their lives um, can better help them, and I was wondering if you can share some of your wisdom on that. Now, um I'm not sure what you mean. Well, what I mean is um, if we know someone who is ill, like yeah. say we go to the hospital to visit right. someone, what are the ways that we can be with them that okay. would, would be better for them and help them All to right. heal I, and, I as thought opposed you meant to the ways if, that aren't so? If you had an illness, because part of it is if you've been through it, you, you become what I call the native, so then you're you're more help actually, and that's why the group support becomes very helpful mm-hmm. because you're not getting a lecture from somebody who hasn't been there. And mm-hmm. um, also that if if you really are just there for people, it becomes mm-hmm. important because studies will show you that, and I always tell people experiment and do this, put your, go in your bathroom, put your hand in a bucket of ice, and keep it there until it's too painful for you to tolerate. And check how long you kept it in. Then surround yourself with loved ones and put your hand in a bucket of ice. And watch how much longer you literally keep it there. So whether you're putting it in a bucket of ice or having a child or going through surgery, uh, if you're surrounded by loved ones, you have far fewer complications and pain than if you're isolated and alone. So just your presence makes a difference. The other is that I found is something from Helen Keller who said that deafness is darker by far than blindness. So the best way to help others is to walk in and say, how you doing? How can I help you? Anything you need. And be willing to listen. Because mm-hmm. if you said, oh, I just listened to an hour of Bernie Siegel, so here, read his book, do this, do that. <laughs> I'd say, no, you're not helping. But if you walked in and said, you know, I heard this fellow Bernie Siegel, and so I got one of his books, you might find it helpful. And you put it down. See, you're not okay. saying, how many pages did you read, <laughs> you know, the next day. Right. It's, I care about you, here's a gift that may help you. And I will tell right. you that as a family member, if they start reading the book and say, thank you, this is inspiring, they are inspiring. In other words, I'm the coach bringing something out that's within them. So right. those, those people are, are literally going to do better than the person who says, oh, that book made me feel guilty because he asks you what's going on in your life and I, I, you know, I don't want to, and then he talks about drawings, and I'm not an artist. <laughs> you know, that's the guilt, shame, and blame that people grow up with. So, right. And right. you might say, putting it in a broader perspective, is to reparent them, to, to really keep loving them. In other words, keep showing up, keep being there for them, because right. that will prove to them that they're worth something. 
and then they will make choices that are better for them rather than you know being self-destructive and feeling rejected and uh, you know indifference and and that nobody cares so what's the point and i think if you're there for them continuously they they feel that and uh, make a change you know that makes sense uh, that is health oriented and not self destructive mm-hmm. because i really feel that um the most significant factor in our health and our lives is did your parents love you i mean did you really feel loved by your parents because if you grow up with that sense then you have a self worth and will take better care of yourself and statistics again show this that uh, you know what what the disease rate is by midlife is about 1 out of 4 if your parents loved you and almost 100% if you said my parents didn't love me so all the addictions wow. and you know just uh lifestyle all these things are related to self-worth and self-esteem mhm mm-hmm. wow that's amazing well i know you have five children of your own <laughs> which is amazing and um well there's a punchline i have to tell you that yeah, if, throw if, it in. You know, these are my sense of humor jokes, but if people learn from the mistakes, why do they have more than one child? <laughs> oh, God. That's so funny. <laughs> but um, another well, line that, well, again, that within the house, though, we communicated. See, I always say their line when I was becoming overbearing was, Dad, you're not in the operating room now. They were reminding me that, you know, this is our home. You're not the surgeon. You're not in charge of everything. And my sense of humor, which they weren't offended by, was also when they began to really drive me nuts was, do you know why your mother and I will never get a divorce? And they'd say, why not? Because neither one of us wants the children. And, you know, (laughs) then they knew, "Uh uh-oh, he's getting to that point. You know, we better calm down. Um, (laughs) All right. But, you know, there was noise, there was humor, there was love. They learned that you could be angry when you didn't like how you were being treated or wanted attention, and you were still loved. And then that was the key in the household. Robert Frost has a line in a poem that says, home is a place that when when you go there, they have to take you in. (laughs) And that's how our kids would always feel, that... They yeah. may not have liked what they were doing, but I loved them. Well, that's wonderful. I was going to ask you um, if you could talk a little bit about how your interactions with children have helped you to develop your life philosophies, because I think it's very clear from your writings that that's been a major factor. Yeah. Well, I did, as I said, a lot of children's surgery. And, um, you, you know, what I learned literally was that the kids could get through anything if they felt loved. And I would tell mm-hmm. that to my parents, you know, that if you're there and loving them, they can handle it. Because the kids are living in the moment. You know, they're not, what's going to happen next year, five years from now? Uh, many mm-hmm. years ago, uh, one of our children had a pain in his leg, told me at age seven he needed an x-ray because I told him to take a hot bath. I figured he bumped his leg, it's hurting. And the x-ray showed a bone tumor, which, you know, just looking at the x-ray, the odds of it being a malignant tumor was like 95%. It turned out to be a rare benign tumor. But before we knew that, before he had surgery, um, I was totally depressed, thinking he'll be dead in a year, trying to get across to all the other, you know, kids and my wife that 
this is what's going to happen next year. And he came to me the day after the x-ray, and he said, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, yeah, what is it? He said, you're handling this poorly. Now, that's a seven-year-old <laughs> talking to his father. And I said, what do you mean? He said, we want to go out and play and have a nice day, and you want us in the bedrooms, you know, depressed and upset. And why can't we go out and have, a, you know, fun? And, you know, it's like he hit me in the head with a mallet. It was, yeah, you're right. Why don't we go out and have some fun? <laughs> so go ahead. And and that week before we knew, you know, that it was a rare benign tumor really taught me a lot. And, and, and I always say animals and children. You know, we've had pets with cancer, too. They're not worried about next year. They're trying to have some fun. And believe me, they have uh, fooled a lot of uh, veterinarians because when our kids, again, said to me, you can't put the dog to sleep, he had extensive cancer, the vet said, Mm -hmm. but I've never seen a dog this sick recover, you know. And I said, our kids won't let me. So I brought him home, and what did I do? I treated him as if he were one of my patients. I mean, I loved him, massaged him, shared vitamins, meals with him, and within two weeks, this dog who was literally lying on the floor and couldn't move was up on his feet, out the door with our other pets, and uh, lived for years. And That's it always, amazing. you know, stunned the vet that because he, he kept saying, I've never seen anything like this happen. But it's something that I was seeing happening in people. And uh, so it isn't just people. It's about, you know, the relationship, the connection, and what it does to our chemistry. Well, let me, just two mm-hmm. simple statistics that cancer patients who laugh live longer. And the study said that you don't have to get somebody to tell you a joke. I mean, if you just laugh for no reason several times a day, you live longer. And to anybody listening, laugh for a few minutes and watch how you feel. My wife, during my lectures, used to do stand-up comedy, you know, one-liners, like a female Henny Youngman, let's put it that way, you know, teasing people and and, you know, when I watched the audience, it really impressed the hell out of me as a doctor because everybody, after 20 minutes of laughing, looked five and ten years younger, straighter, you know, sitting up than they did after I lectured for an hour and then I'd come back and do another hour. But I always pointed out to them, how do you feel now versus 20 minutes ago? So that they understood that this wasn't just, oh, we're having fun, it was What's happening to your chemistry and your body due to the laughter? And another study that we've done showed that loneliness affects the genes which control immune function. So people who are lonely are more likely to get anything from flu to cancer because of that lifestyle. And, uh, you know, you can't separate yourself from your life. This is what I try to get across to people and why I would say to them, What's happened last year or two in your life, you know, when some illness would occur? And um, Mm -hmm. it wasn't about blaming them, but trying to see what could have made you vulnerable now. You know, Mm -hmm. if it's the death of one of your children, if you lost your job, moved across the country. I mean, those are all factors that contribute to health. And we know this from drawing blood from actors, that if you give a couple, you know, male, female, this was a script, in which there's a tragedy happening. The woman's husband is murdered and so forth. And the two of them are interacting. Their immune function goes down. The stress hormone levels go up while they're acting. Then you give them a comedy. Wow. 
and the opposite happens. See, then it restores immune function and stress hormone levels go down. So I'm always saying to people, act and behave as if you're the person you want to be. And you rehearse and practice. In other words, you don't blame yourself. I didn't do it right um, today. Okay, rehearse. And that your family, people you work with, uh, can all be your coaches. You know, if they see you deviating from being the person you really want to be, they can give you a little, you know, verbal cue and get you back again. Mm-hmm. Well, that's absolutely amazing. <laughs> wow. Um, I was wondering, you, you do talk a lot about how to, um, how you should behave like a survivor, and I was wondering if you could give some other tips on that. I mean, those are clearly excellent tips. Um, yeah. It, do you have anything it, you know, that's something doctors should give to everybody, you know, that when you go into the office, they shouldn't say you have this disease and, you know, you have six months to live or this is what's going to happen to you because people aren't statistics. The word I use now is potential. What is your potential? So, oh, that's good. You know, what I tended to do, because really when I started doing this, again, back in the late 70s, I began to do a lot of lecturing and meeting people I thought were dead. And mm. I would say, what, what, you know, where? why didn't you come back to the office? Well, you know, if somebody told them they're going to be dead, what the hell's the point of coming back to the office, you know? So, right. <laughs> but I realized they all had a story to tell about what they did in their life. And basically, uh, psychiatrist George Solomon, years ago when he was working with AIDS patients, came up with a very simple list, he said, that helped him determine who was going to be a long-term survivor. See, even volunteers. I mean, there were a lot of people when AIDS first came out who were helping others with AIDS. And they were often asking me, how come I'm doing well and my friends aren't? I said, because you're giving love and helping, and it makes a difference to you. But his statements were, number one, do I have a sense of meaning in my daily activities and relationships? And, you know, that relates to the mortality rate of Monday. I mean, if you if your work, your life has meaning in it, you will be a lot healthier and live longer. And I always say, find your way of contributing love to the world. Um, Mm -hmm. So it isn't about what job you take. It's about how do I contribute to the world? Because people are everywhere. You know, whether you're landscaping, plumbing, or veterinarian, people are attached to what you're, you're doing. And you have to really relate to those people. Another that's really important is, am I able to express anger appropriately in defense of myself? And I particularly bring that up for people who go to the hospital, that I say, don't be a good patient. That's a submissive sufferer who's likely to get the wrong treatment. You know what I mean? They'll walk into your room, give you what's meant for the person in another bed or the next room, and you don't say anything so they don't discover their mistake. Um, but if you're a respite, a responsible participant, you stop, you question them, uh, you want to know what is it, what am I getting, why, uh, and they may say, oh, you're such a pest, but yeah, it could save your life. So if you're not treated with respect, speak up. That's why, you know, there was noise in our house, and uh, when one of the kids said to me, you're getting divorced, I said, why are you asking? He said, you yell a lot. I said, if I don't like how I'm treated, I speak up. He said, oh, because the neighbors are getting a divorce, and they yelled. I said, no, I love your mother, and I love you, but I don't like how you're treating me. And that's the point I would make to people, that there's appropriate anger. 
So when people say to me, you keep writing all these books about love and you're, you, you know, yelling at me. I said, I love you, <laughs> but I don't like how you're treating me. You know, that could be in a store or somewhere else, you know, where they say they're going to fix something and they don't. Yeah, I get upset. Right. Um, but I have to say, with the years, what I've seen in me is I'm a heck of a lot calmer and more peaceful because I, I'm I'm a healthier person, if you know what I mean. So I'm not projecting yeah. my troubles on others. And I always say to people, you want to test how do you react to the world. If you say the world is full of lovely people, then you're a lovely person, and that's what you're seeing. But if everybody's nasty, bitter, resentful, selfish, that's you, and you're wow. projecting it on others. Um, mm-hmm. a, well, a simple way of knowing, if you're looking for a good doctor or plumber, it doesn't matter what profession, say are you criticized by the people you work with, the people you work for, and for doctors, I'd say, and nurses, you know, nurses, mm-hmm. family, and patients. And if and the good doctors say yes, because they're learning from their mistakes. They don't make excuses. Mm-hmm. So when people right. express it, okay. So express the anger and don't be afraid of learning from it if somebody's angry at you. Mm-hmm. The next two are, am I able to ask friends and family for favors and for help when I need it? Because what I find is so often people get sick and say, well, I don't want to upset my family. But you know, who's going to support you? Who's going to help you? Just like what we talked about earlier, you know, when you said, how can I help somebody I know who's got a life-threatening or serious illness or accident or something? If they don't talk about it, how do you know and how can you help them? So it is survival behavior to ask for help. Now, the next question is the most important. Am I able to say no to someone who asks for a favor if I can't or don't feel like doing it? Now, why is that significant? Because, again, if you ask your family and friends for help, they they can say no. They have a right to say, no, I can't do it. And you also have a right to do that. Otherwise, you're saying no to yourself all the time. And nurses, I might add, have a great deal of difficulty in saying no when somebody asks them for something. It's like their nursing personality. But I remind them, then you're not taking care of yourself if you're constantly doing what you don't want to do. And your body's going to suffer. You know, it'll do you a favor. It'll get you sick, so now you can say, no, I can't, I'm sick. But learn to say no. Do I have enough play in my life? Find things that make you lose track of time. I think that's the healthiest state we can ever be in. It's a total trance state where you're not aware of your body. You're doing something creative and joyful. And, you know, a few hours go by and you look at your watch and say, oh, my God, I thought it was just 15 minutes or half an hour. Yeah, that's good for you. Because that's, as I say, uh, that wonderful trance state where your body is just having, well, it's like it's not a part of you because you're involved in something else and totally well, focused I think you on said, it. Didn't you say somewhere that uh, your body doesn't even age when you're in that state? Yeah, that's my sense, that if you do something for three hours, look at your watch and say, oh, my God, I thought it was half an hour, then I think you're only half an hour older, not three hours older. Mm-hmm. And oh, you see that, well, there's a wonderful line. The the um, George Hallis years ago owned the Chicago Bears football team. And I don't know what book I read this little note in, but somebody went to the office because he forgot some papers there on a Sunday. And he said, I see George, who's like almost 90 or something, sitting in the office working. And he goes in, he says, George, what are you doing here at your age? Working. 
And he said, it's only work if there's someplace else you'd rather be. Okay? Oh, wow. And that's what, why you want your heart to make up your mind. You know, where do I want to be? What feels good for me? Um, another one, you know, similar to what I said earlier about hunger leading you to nourishment, that you don't get depressed about being depressed. In other words, if depression occurs, you will do something and react to it and get help. Mm-hmm. So you don't say, oh, I'm depressed, it's not good for me if I'm sick and depressed. So then you get more depressed knowing it's not good and it it gets crazy. But when you're willing to deal with the emotions and feelings. And Mm -hmm. another is that you participate. As I said, you're the responsible participant. You don't just fill every prescription, if you know what I mean. You know, if the family says, eat this, and the doctor says, take this pill, I mean, or you're going to have an operation, you say, wait a minute. Let me think about what feels right for me so that you participate in it. Because when you do, then I call it labor pains. In other words, when you're in charge of the decisions, you have far fewer complications. It always amazed me and confused a lot of nurses how I would do major surgery on people and they'd wake up and they'd refuse medication and say, I don't need it, I'm a little sore, that's all. And the nurses kept saying, they're refusing, they're refusing. I say, they don't have pain, that's why. You know, that's a very different statement, you know, than somebody's refusing medication. It was about, I am not in pain. And so eventually, I mean, a lot of them began to be called one of Siegel's crazy patients. But that was an affectionate <laughs> term, if you know what I mean. Because yeah, I do. They, they would be having surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and not having trouble. And, you know, some of the other doctors would say, is my machine broken? Did, weren't there any drugs in that? <laughs> and then they'd be like, no. It, oh, it's Siegel's patient. You know, and then it was, oh, okay, we understand now why you're not having trouble. And, again, when I talk about drawings, you see, some people can draw the devil giving me poison as their treatment, and somebody else draws it as a gift from God. So you can yeah. see why there's an enormous difference. And the last oh, question is, am I living a role to the detriment of my own needs? And for men, I saw this over and over. I can't work. What's the point of living? And these are men who were sitting in a room with their wife and children. And and they will literally say, I can't work. What's the point of living? And I point out, here's a family that you might, oh, I didn't think of that. So if you're just the wage earner and you can't, you know, earn money anymore, it's like, okay, then I should be dead. And for the women, I try to point out, much as it keeps them alive for longer than men, you know, their relationships, but that shouldn't be the only reason you're alive. You've got to have a relationship with yourself because I've seen yeah. women stay alive while nine kids grew up and die, the year, and I'm talking about 20 years later, die of cancer that, mm. you know, didn't show up for 20 years, and then suddenly, boom, the kids are gone because her statement was, I can't die till you're all married and out of the house. Well, they're all out of the house, and then it's okay to die. And I would like, you know, her to be one of her kids, too. Why don't you have a life now and enjoy yourself? And Yeah, that's so, a great way of putting it, too. You know, the, to I, I, yeah, just remembering, I added three questions just to find things up, out about people and they so they know themselves, that if I walk up to somebody and say, hey, I'm taking you out to dinner, what do you want? If they're in touch with their feelings, they always answer immediately. But if they stand there looking at me, thinking, I wonder what he likes. He didn't tell me how much money he's willing to spend. 
you know, and, and they just stand there looking at you. I say, what's taking you so long? Because kids will scream at you in two minutes, you know, in a second, where they want you to take them. But the intellectuals, uh, I say to them, look, you haven't been through anything, you know, a crisis, a major loss or life-threatening illness, so you're busy thinking. I want you to answer how you feel. Yeah. And uh, to pay attention to that. And sometimes I'll also say, how would you introduce yourself to God? <clears throat> so that they understand that they are divine stuff. You know, that if you say, oh, I'm a doctor, God says come back and you know who you are. But if you're willing to and understand that you can say to God, I'm your child, or it's you, God says, hey, come on in. And that's a very different uh, reaction, you know, that you feel good about yourself, yeah. Yeah, wow. Well, thank you so much. We're um, running out of time, and I just wanted to find out um, before we end if you have any um, publications coming out or lectures, you know, anything you'd like to announce. Yeah, first of all, I love that sentence, we're running out of time, and I want everybody (laughs) to remember you're going to run out of time, so enjoy your lifetime, okay? Spend more time with the things and people you love and who love you and less with those who don't because time isn't money, it's everything. And the other, we have a book that will be out in the fall that is literally about miracles. And when I say that, I don't mean that everything is unexplainable, but just the wonderful things. Well, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross used to say there are no coincidences. And Jung said the future is unconsciously prepared long in advance and therefore can be guessed by clairvoyance. So, yes, some of them you'd say are miracles in terms of disease But others are just things that have happened in people's lives that aren't coincidences and how wonderful they are. But I think until you get yourself into that, the quiet mind, the still pond is a symbol I use to everybody, that you know yourself and your reflection when there's no turbulence. And one that came out a little while ago was Faith, Hope, and Healing. That has Well, after each story is, again, my reflection, you know, what it teaches us. Because it's inspiring stories from people living with cancer. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I actually looked at that um, earlier in the week. It's a wonderful book. Thank you. Um, well, thanks so much. Um, My pleasure, today. Melissa. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank <laughs> okay. you. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, well, I'd just like to thank those of you who are listening in this afternoon and those of you listening after the fact as well. For April, we'll be having two interviews, one on the 18th with Ariel Ford and one on the 25th with Adele Kenny and Deborah LaVela. Both interviews will take place at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. As well, we're currently accepting submissions for Tefera's 2011 writing contest in the categories of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Prizes of $500 apiece will be awarded in each category. For more information or to enter the contest, please visit our website at www.teferitjournal.com. A year subscription to Teferit is $18 and includes six issues, two print and four digital. The site is also a great place for readers and listeners to post their own poetry, since our editors feature one new poem each day from those who post. Thanks so much for being with us this afternoon. We hope you'll join us again in April.